Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Uh, thanks very much for subscribing and rating, downloading. Do share the podcast with people. It makes a big difference for us. Just a few little likes or stars or claps or whatever it is they do on social platforms these days. All of it um, does help raise us in the algorithm of life and uh, reach new audiences. So we do appreciate it. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email us science at newstalk.com or you can tweet us. We're at Newstalk Science. Coming up, it's very difficult to nail down the one thing that makes someone sexy to another. Is it their body shape or the symmetry of their face, the proportion of their features or the scent that they're giving off that we are unwittingly smelling through our nose? We're going to find out on this week's episode because we're going to talk about the science of sexiness and solve all those problems for you. (laughs) First, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining me is Dr. Jessamine Fairfield from NUI Galway and Dr. Lara Duncan. You're both very welcome. Our first story. Jess is about going back to the moon. That's right, Jonathan. It's all happening in Florida at the moment. So NASA's Artemis 1 moon rocket has now traveled to the launch pad at the Kennedy Space Center. Um, which is very exciting. It's ahead of a planned launch at the end of this month, which is basically going to test for the first time ever their new Orion spacecraft with their space launch system, uh, the largest sort of moon-going rocket and and any kind of rocket that's ever been built. Um, The Artemis missions are going to start with this uncrewed test, which will be the first mission at the end of the month. Um, But they're working towards a crewed mission for Artemis 2 and then a return to the moon at Artemis 3 for people in 2025. Um, this, Which is soon. It is. It's, it's actually pretty soon. Yeah. <laughs> and the the last time that any person set foot on the moon um, was in 1972. It was Gene Cernan on the last uh, Apollo mission that went to the surface of the moon. So it's actually been 50 years. And the goal of the Artemis missions is building towards a permanent lunar base, like at the south pole of the moon that would have its own power reactors, you know, water extraction, all sorts of new technology, but also all sorts of new science, uh, which is really exciting. exciting. Yeah, and even just the Artemis 1 mission, um, they're going to have a lot of new kind of scientific payloads that are going up. There's a bunch of CubeSats that will be studying the moon's composition, space weather, new propulsion systems. And they're even taking some biology, um, which is always exciting, a bit of fungi, yeast, um, algae, plant seeds, and basically looking at how all these things respond outside the Earth's magnetosphere, which protects us from the ionizing radiation in space. So this is going to be really important if we want to have people actually like long term on the moon uh, being biologically okay, um, we need to study what might happen to them. And, you know, it sounds maybe really far out there, but if you think back, like it used to sound really far out there that we might have a permanently crewed um, space station orbiting the Earth. And now that's just like a normal thing. You can just look up and see the International Space Station in the sky. It's no big deal. So I'm really excited about a future where we might feel that way about a moon base. Totally. And, and yeast is always fun. Uh, yeast in space, uh, triply so. The this um, this base that we have, it, will it be permanently inhabited like the International Space Station? You think? Yeah, that's the idea. Eventually, that's so cool. So we'll actually get to see humans lift off in space like our parents did many many years ago. We'll get to have our own. Hey, we're going to the moon for the first time. Yeah, uh, experience. No, it's going to be incredible. And I mean, this is obviously also a, a very necessary first step if we ever want to do something like go to Mars. Right, having a permanently crewed moon base um, is a necessary first step if we want to go anywhere in the rest of the solar system. So it's really exciting. In this um, reboot of the moon landings, who's playing Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins? 
a woman and a person of color. Um, that's one of the things that yes. NASA has promised is that they will put the first woman on the moon soon, which uh, I'm also very excited about. But yeah, I think obviously there's always lots of competition for astronaut spots, and I'm sure even more so for going to the moon. It would be great to, uh, if you remember a long time ago, they did that Mars One thing, and we covered it quite extensively because we were very excited about, you know, this company that was doing a sort of X factor for astronauts to go to the moon. And it just fell on its face. Do you remember that? And and we were very excited about it in the program. So we gave them lots of publicity and it ended up being absolute BS. And everyone told it was BS, but it was just such a good story. I was like, come on, it could work. And uh, in it, they were going to do this sort of... Um, X factor to see regular people, normal people um, were, were, were able to apply. And uh, I'm wondering, will they will they give us a bit of insight into the selection process via a TV medium for this? Because it re- really would be great, but maybe it's not it's not for the science. But NASA is very media savvy. I would love to see, you know, the sort of, you know, when they take the people outside of the room, they talk about the other astronauts, like that sort oh, of God. reality show. <laughs> I think if you want astronauts think she's to ready have for good space. relationships with each other, then maybe you don't want to do that. <laughs> but. <laughs> um, Lara, our second story has to do with restoring sight. Yeah, um, I'm not sure I can compete, though, because Jessamine said both fungi and magnetosphere in one story. Mm. But this is a really, really cool story. So there is a type of disease called keratoconus. And what happens is the cornea, which is the clear, thick part at the front of our eye, in people who have this disease, it starts to become very thin. And the pressure from the inside of the eye causes it to bulge outwards. And eventually it becomes so blurred that the people who have this condition become blind, completely blind. And There are a number of treatments that you can do along the way, but if it becomes end-stage keratoconus, the only way to treat it is a corneal transplant. And that has to come from a human. And it has to come in the same way a kidney or a liver comes. It has to come from someone who has died. And it comes with complications like very difficult surgery that takes a number of hours. You have to have immunosuppressive medication. So this new paper that's just been published in Nature Biotechnology is where they took essentially pig skin and they wanted the collagen from pig skin and they broke it down and they made a hydrogel out of this and they then cut quite a small incision to make a little pouch into the cornea of people who had end-stage keratoconus so these people were almost all of them were completely blind 14 out of the 20 of them were completely blind and the other six had very very poor vision and they put their pig collagen false cornea in it was a 30 minute operation they only needed eight weeks of immunosuppressive drops as opposed to over a year for a corneal transplant Um, and there was no rejection because there's no cells in this whereas obviously with the human corneal transplant there are it's full of cells Um, and these people pretty much all regained vision Um, In fact, all of them regained some level of vision. Three people who were completely blind regained perfect vision. So this is just so exciting. And the theory of this is that corneal transplants are obviously they're an end stage for an end stage of a disease, but they're not practical. They're not readily available. They're not cheap. I Um, couldn't do one. No, you know what? Neither could I actually. Um, So Hmm. this, what they're hoping, and I love this part of the paper too, is they're hoping that Um, Because a lot of the time, people who get to the end stage of this disease are people who live in countries with a lower socioeconomic background, the kind of people who are not treated early. And they want a fast, cheap treatment for these people. And this is wonderful. 
So they've done one human trial, they're going to do 100 people in the next trial, and then they're going to look for authorization from the FDA and roll it out across the world. That's amazing. Do a lot of people have this condition? So no, (laughs) but now somewhere between sort of 50 and 200 200 per 100,000. And the vast, vast majority of them are obviously not at the end stage. You can treat it with things like contact lenses and cross-linking of the cornea and other things. But the kind of people who do suffer from the end stage are the kind of people who can't afford to be somewhere they could have a corneal transplant. So it should be brilliant. That's amazing. Okay. Uh, Our third story, Jessamine, has to do with uh, a very unusual creature that at one point was considered to be a common ancestor of humans. That's right. So this is a fossil uh, that's about 500 million years old. Um, which there was a story about it a couple of years ago that described it as an angry minion with no anus that could be our earliest known ancestor. Um, I mean, we all have family members that we're embarrassed about, right? So this wasn't wasn't too bad, potentially. <laughs> but this story came out a couple of years ago with this very small fossil, which was only about a millimeter in length, um, which basically it was very scary looking. Um, it was basically just like a little sort of very small, like scary tooth mouth covered in spikes um, that could be our earliest known ancestor. And it kind of looked a little bit like the sand monsters from Dune. Yeah, it looked a lot like those giant worms, um, except very, 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 very small. Um, And basically, the reason why it was described this way, right, is that humans and other vertebrates, like when we're developing in the womb, there's the kind of the the gut tube is what forms initially. And, you know, effectively, humans are are tubes, right? We have we have an in and we have an out. And there's a tube in the middle. Um, And in development... Can we just fact check this with the doctor? (laughs) Yeah, we have an in and an out, right, Lara? Yeah. Do you know what? My mom has always said that our children are tubes that are just open at both ends. (laughs) Exactly. So we have we have the mouth on one side, we have the anus on the other side. And this fossil had just one hole, right? It was less like a tube, more like a little pouch where one hole is both taking food in and expelling waste, um, which doesn't sound great, to be honest. So you can see why it was an angry minion. Um, <laughs> but but new research from the University of Bristol has shown that this fossil, which was called Saccharitis coronarius, um, is actually an evolutionary ancestor of insects and crustaceans. So not vertebrates, not us. Yes. Yeah, few. Uh, kind of a relief because basically where where the previous research had gone wrong is they had looked at a sample that had all of these little tiny holes around its scary, spiky tooth mouth. Um, and the previous researchers had thought, oh, these look like primitive gills. That's sort of a precursor to stuff that's happened in the vertebrate evolutionary tree. Um, but the researchers from the University of Bristol took a lot more samples that they had access to. They made 3D models and they showed that actually those holes around the mouth were where even more scary teeth had broken away. So it's still nightmare fuel, uh, if I'm honest with you, but at least we don't have to take responsibility for this at the next big like family wedding. It's like, no, 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 that's that's crustaceans problem. That's not our problem. If you want to see a photograph of our not uh, last scary looking anus minion ancestor, you can have a look at our Twitter page, twitter.com forward slash news talk science. And our final story, Lara, has to do with fear. Um, Apparently some sort of human emotion um, that, some people experience is not something, of course, that I'm familiar with, but uh, anyway, go on. <laughs> I can't follow your stories, Jessamine. <laughs> that was okay, right. So my my nowhere near as exciting story as that one is um, just published from the researchers in the Salk Institute in California. Um, so I suppose the first thing you need to do is picture yourself in a forest fire. So what are you feeling? Obviously, you are feeling heat. So that is touch. You are able to smell the smoke. You're able to see the fire. You're able to hear the crackling. 
So wouldn't it make sense for all of those really important signals to feed into one system that says run away? But we weren't able to find that in the brain up until now. And um, so these researchers they, they decided, look, it's probably there because it makes evolutionary sense that we would have one really big system that says run away. So they knew that there was a type of protein called CGRP. And they knew that it fed into the amygdala, which is our center for fear. And they also knew that all the other sight, smell, touch had different ways of feeding into it. And they thought, look, maybe this all comes through this CGRP. So they did lots and lots of very exciting science where they kind of colored the proteins that were coming out of it with different fluorescent colors to see the pathway. And essentially they found it, they theorized it, they looked and they found it. So they found that there's two distinct pathways where they get inputs from all five senses that are all based around fear. They feed down these pathways, one coming from the thalamus and one coming from the brainstem. They go into the amygdala and then they form this A, runaway um, sense, and B, these fear memories. Now, this is only in mice, but they found that this CGRP is very abundantly produced in human brains as well. So they Probably think not that mine. they. And not yours, but myself and Jessamine are abundant, I think, in the CGRP, like all sensible human beings are. Um, and what they think that might be able to use this for is that they might be able to treat things like post-traumatic stress disorder or other fear-related disorders. Because they know, for instance, that um, a drug that will block CGRP is useful in migraines. Now, it's not exactly the same thing, obviously, as fear, but they're thinking that there are drugs that could be used to help dampen down the system. So for things like PTSD, as I said, but also for things like autism and anything that brings extra um, and overt senses in. So anything that you're flooded with too much in terms of your senses, maybe you could dampen it down. So it's very interesting. They found this sort of potentially universal fear pathway. Can I ask you a question? I mean, there's so many drugs available on the market. And, you know, we often hear of one particular treatment that's already on the on the shelf may be useful for another type of treatment. Are there not people who have a specific condition uh, for whom we've given all drugs to test and see whether or not they work for that condition? Wouldn't that make sense? If someone who has, for example, no. psoriasis, you just give them every drug we have made in history and then see <laughs> if maybe the thing that actually you know, reduces inflammation is also fantastic for psoriasis. No, a hundred percent. That is not how I'm patenting that idea. <laughs> so no, I mean, drugs have to pass masses of authorization before they can be used and they can only be used for the specific thing that they're authorized for. Unless so you're a doctor, things, right? Well, there are things that we can use off label. And I put that in quotes because in certain specialties, we know from common knowledge that they work really, really well and you use them off label and you can't back yourself. If something goes wrong, you can't say, look, this is backed by research um, and it's backed by authorization because it's not. So absolutely no, we do not give like a rake of benzodiazepines and opioids for somebody who's got psoriasis. Do you know, like you don't use every drug just to test it. These have well, to you be could start with the ones tested. that make the most sense and then just go through. It's just today you're having this drug, tomorrow you're having that drug and just give them a year's worth of different drugs to see if eventually... A, a year in the life of someone suffering from a disease is a very long year, my friend. So you want to give them the drug that's going to work based on medical rationale. <sighs> okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Lauren Dungan and Dr. Jessamine Fairfield. No fun whatsoever. Uh, thank you for your time. Now... 
Probably most of us could put together a list of things we find attractive in a potential partner. And a lot of those things will likely come down to our personality and the cultural environment we grew up in. When it comes to spending your life with someone, there are probably numerous criteria that have to be satisfied for all of us. But what about that initial, almost unconscious spark of attraction? What causes that? And does it have any real impact on whether a relationship with that person would stand the test of time? Well, Paul Eastwick is professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of California, Davis, and head of the Attraction and Relationships Research Library. He joins me now. Uh, Welcome to the program, Paul. This is obviously something that has been looked at from lots of different angles, but it's a tricky one in a way because attractiveness is so people dependent, isn't it? Yes, that's a very good point. And, you know, one of the things that we endeavor to try to capture in some of our research is, you know, how much of these judgments about how desirable somebody is as a romantic partner can be boiled down to some sort of consensual agreement about the qualities that that other person has and how much of it is due to the idiosyncratic way that uh, two people perceive each other. And it's, it's uh, you know, sometimes challenging to pull those things apart. So how do you scientifically study something like attractiveness then, or, or that at first spark? Uh, I, I would have thought that that is probably the easiest thing to study, right? Right. So um, studying initial attraction or initial impressions has traditionally been done in a variety of ways. Um, going back 50 years or more, what scholars have done is they've brought people into the laboratory who don't know each other and try to capture their initial impressions of one another. That's pretty straightforward to do. And there's still lots of research going on like that today. And well, wait, 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 what what did they find? This research tended to be interested in things like, uh, oh, we tend to be attracted to others who uh, we think are similar to us. We tend to be attracted to others when we think that they're physically attractive. I mean, physical attractiveness has long been uh, you know, recognized as one of the most powerful predictors of initial attraction. I mean, is, are there others? God, I sound so shallow when I say that. Yes. I mean, um, you know, the number of positive qualities that have been documented using this sort of approach is uh, almost too many to live. You know, we like people who we perceive to be confident. We like people who we think have a good sense of humor. And right. we like people who we think are intelligent, right? I mean, all of these attributes, you know, when you think somebody has these things, you tend to like them more. You tend to want to go on more dates with them. But to some extent... This ends up being a, a sort of a collection of effects, a, a collection of traits that we think are desirable or not in a partner. And that's useful, but I think there are, um, there are other things that end up being important to understand in the way people initiate relationships that go beyond traits alone. Right. Just to, to look at the methodology of that sort of stuff, like how do they go about checking whether or not you were attracted to someone? Was it like a speed date where they, they got like a minute to ask questions and that was it? Or, or was it, was it more sterile than that? Um, You know, uh, these studies vary. Some are 
presumably going to be done in pretty sterile laboratory settings. Of course, that doesn't take out the, you know, potential social anxiety and that sort of natural jolt that you feel when you're trying to have a conversation with somebody for the first time. So even in a sterile lab, you can recreate that. This approach of studying initial impressions, I would argue, sort of uh, culminated in speed dating research of about 10 to 15 years ago, which you know, it was a great way to get a lot of data all at once. So you get many people's impressions of one another as their first meeting, right? But it is, it, it is very quick in the grand scheme of things, in the sense that what most people are doing on these, you know, in these four-minute, five-minute, eight-minute conversations is they're just trying to find some sort of common space to talk about something that they either know about in common, something they have in common. They're trying to uh, sort of create a common conversational framework so that it goes well rather than terribly awkwardly. What about um, the the sort of nonverbal stuff like eye contact or, you know, the shape of someone's face, the, the so-called golden ratio? How much do they affect someone's idea of what's attractive? Um, they certainly do. The predictors of attractiveness, for example you know, there's various features associated with um, uh, the attractiveness of somebody's face that are pretty consistent across cultures. You mentioned the golden ratio. But there's oh, really? Also like, yeah. I, I, thought, I thought that would be very culturally spe- specific. You're, you're saying there's some things that are universally beautiful? Well, what are they? Fa- facial attractiveness in particular tends to be pretty consistent across cultures. Um, body attractiveness is different. That has that, that certainly shifts across cultures and has shifted across time in terms of what you know people expect out of male and female bodies. But in terms of f- uh, facial appearance... Things like large eyes uh, in both men and women, broad jaw and a you know larger forehead in men. You know these things, you know, th- these kinds of masculine features. You see pretty good cross-cultural agreement right. um, about these sorts of factors. Um, I guess clear skin, shiny hair, things exactly. that be- because in a way those things represent youth, right? If you talk about big eyes, um, you know, babies often have outsized eyes because their eyes are born at the same size and their heads grow into to a proper ratio with them. Uh, shiny hair is associated with youth and as, as we get older, that, that, that shine tends to go, uh, as does the, I suppose, the the perfectness of our skin and so so it, it it seems to me all of those you could also say are to do with youth uh yes that's right um there's also um features related to symmetry and averageness right and so there are great debates you can get into about whether uh we prefer symmetry because it signals something about our robustness to illness or you can make an argument about how it's sort of this general cognitive mechanism that we possess and bring to bear on many different things that we encounter we tend to like the things that are closest to the schema that exists in our minds and that schema is you know symmetrical and average by definition so we could tend to like symmetrical average things for that reason but whatever your preferred mechanism is there's certainly plenty of evidence that when people are initially meeting each other the people who are consensually rated as having these features and i should be clear that most of the time when researchers are looking at attractiveness in these sorts of live contexts, they're not taking those sort of precise facial metric measurements that are making up a lot of these older studies that I'm talking about. 
usually what it means is that you get this separate group of raters who's looking at photographs of these people and sort of rating them on a one to ten scale and we call that a consensual measure or sort of you know the, the scientific um, <clears throat> version of swiping left swiping right now that I think that's about, right now that I think about it at tinder it would be a fantastic scientific tool in this respect would it not um it is although I would um you know many a scientist have tried and failed to discover what secrets lie in the <laughs> treasure trove of data that these companies have. Nobody knows. Uh, but it certainly would be fascinating. Um, I would note, too, that you know, for somebody like me, I really care a lot about live impressions and what happens after that first impression. People like hot photographs. That's pretty clear. Not that there is an interesting research going on in sort of how people perceive online dating profiles. But uh, personally, I do see that as a separate question from the sort of long later process of how do people actually initiate a relationship. I remember reading something about Netflix and they looked at all of the user data they had and they wanted to come up with a show based on the things that people liked most. And people liked Kevin Spacey, they liked political um, thrillers, and they liked them set in America, apparently. This is so, this is what they, and they, they basically took the user data and they basically wrote a series based, or commissioned a series right. based on, so, this is my understanding of it. I, I, this is what I read. And I'm wondering, with, with all of the tools that we have now for attractiveness that I, I know you've looked at, we can create faces using AI, right? So could we, could we not, by using some sort of Tinder-type mechanism and, you know, artificial faces, could we not come up with the most universally beautiful face? Would we be able to learn anything from that? Have people tried to do that? What, is, what, what has been the methodology there? Um, yes, yeah, certainly um, there is a lot of good facial morphing, facial metric work that do exactly that. And, and they, you know, get into interesting questions about um, what makes a face seem more dominant or submissive, masculine or feminine? What are the various traits that are conveyed by people's faces, right? So again, in, in that literature, there's a lot of argumentation and debate about how much of that, how much of those judgments is in the eye of the person who's making the judgment. Like we all tend to agree that these faces are dominant, that these faces are trustworthy. The extent to which that is capturing truth about that target is also an interesting, very hotly debated question, which you can only get so far with using computer-generated images because <laughs> there is no objective truth value to that uh, that computer-generated face. But yes, there's a lot of research going on in this in this space. Some of it in the romantic realm, but actually much of it in the sort of general person perception space. So tell me a little bit about your research, Paul. What what are you doing, and why? So I've been especially interested in, you know, originally I did a lot of research using speed dating where we tried to get a sense of what was making people initially click with one another. Um, what we found after, you know, sort of a number of forays into this topic was that we were pretty good at trying to capture who was consensually desirable at these speed dating events. So who were the popular people? Oh, it's the attractive people. It's the people who say I'm popular. Turns out they end up being pretty popular. Um, and we could also do a pretty good job of capturing who tended to be more or less selective 
So people who are maybe a little bit lonely, people who haven't dated in a while, they tend to be a little bit less selective. <laughs> Men tend to be a little bit less selective than women at these sort of events. So we've explored factors like this, but we didn't get a lot of insight into what I would argue is the thing that people are really looking for, and that is compatibility. People don't go to speed dating events so they can, um, you know, get, get a reading on how popular they are. They go there to try to meet somebody that they're going to click especially well with. Yeah. And it turns out that it's very hard to capture anything about compatibility from the things that people report about themselves before they actually meet face-to-face. Wow. So what you're saying is the idea of a, of, of a matchmaker, um, the idea that you could look at someone's personality and say, this person's really going to dig this person, that you're saying that, that's a really difficult thing to do. Yes, at least I will say we don't have statistical models that can do it. I don't wish to pass judgment on the, uh, you know, the the uh, many uh, matchmakers, uh, whether for the uh, rich and famous <laughs> or the yentas. Uh, are, are you worried pass. about? <laughs> are you worried about the lawyers of of the matchmakers? Right, right, right. Uh, Mr. I, I, I'm, no comment. I, that's uh, God. Yeah. The first time I've ever seen someone spooked by uh, right. by potential lawsuits from from matchmakers. Right, um, right. but. I, I, I'm sure they do their job very well. But uh, with the data that we collect, personality information, ideals, what you're looking for in a partner, anything that you can imagine wanting to find similarity on, these sorts of compatibility effects are very, very tiny and make it very hard to figure out who is going to click in any sort of initial impression context. Okay, so um, w- w- have you moved on, or is that? Yeah. It? Did you say right? That's it. I'm I'm done. We can't well, do this. Well, yeah. I mean, it it is. Um, it's a thorny problem. So one, um, one thing that we've tried to do is, uh, we then asked ourselves, well, these initial impressions, maybe this isn't enough. It's not enough time. It's not. Um, really a romantic context you know that was one thing that really surprised us about speed dating was that as we followed up with our speed dating participants over time you know a lot of them went on coffee dates with one another after the fact you know about a third of them would end up spending some time with somebody they hadn't known previously but the number of people who would actually go on to form anything like a romantic relationship even you know a brief you know sexual uh, affair it was you know a few percent of the really? people who came to the event yeah five percent tops it, it is not many people and that you know at first we thought maybe this is something wrong with speed dating and then we started to look into sort of base rates more broadly and no this just is forming a relationship is a low base rate event you got to meet a lot of people before you really find somebody that you click with and so this sort of brought us to the next challenge which was well maybe what we need to do is we just need to follow single people over time and see what it is that they that they that they're doing with their romantic lives over time. And so, is that research ongoing? And what have you found? So um, we spent some time following singles and the people that they were romantically interested in over time. 
And what we expected to see was that it would look a lot like initial impression context, right? Oh, these people that are consensually desirable do very well. And, um, you know, we tend to tend to be attracted to people who had these desirable traits. And what we ended up seeing was that these contexts actually look more like established relationships in the sense that th these people aren't dating yet, but the people tended to be especially interested in potential partners that they felt a real attachment to, that they felt like, this is somebody I really want to be around. This is somebody I want to share my successes with and also, you know, talk about the stresses in my life. And objective physical attractiveness really wasn't mattering at all anymore. So that was surprising to us that we could see these early markers of established relationshipness even in these people that weren't really dating yet. Okay, so in, for those who are um, maybe not super confident about the way they look, it, it's, it's not really so much to do with looks when it comes to getting a relationship. That's right. And I would have thought um, that physically attractive people, by virtue of you know uh, conveying these very positive initial impressions, would be at some sort of advantage when it comes to relationship formation, right? That they'd be able to just form more relationships in general because they're able to attract a wider pool. But some of these data are leading me to question that and that in reality it may be that as people are getting to know each other more and more over time, those sort of consensual objective metrics, like how hot you are, start decreasing in their potency uh, pretty quickly in terms of, you know, leading people to want to form relationships. Can I ask you a personal question? Sure. Are you, are you single? Uh, no. Were you single during the time of doing any of this work? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, back in graduate school, Yes, back in early early graduate school, I was single as we were sort of starting to get into some of the speed dating work. Right, and, and I was just wondering, you know, how does it go down when you're telling someone on a date that you you essentially research the science of attraction or the science of sexiness? Yeah, I mean, right. So it, it usually garnered some laughs. Are you studying me right now? Um, I, th there's also a case to be made to, of leaning into it and just being like, yeah, actually, like, you know, it, the, is this a research project or isn't it? You'll have to chat with me more to find out. So there's, you know, you can go a few different directions with this. <laughs> well, very interesting research. Paul Eastwood, professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of California, Davis, and head of the Attraction and Relationships Research Laboratory. Thanks for your time. Great to be here. Thank you. Well, I'm not sure any of that's going to actually help you on a Friday night uh, when you feel the weight of someone's stare upon you. But um, let me know if it does. Uh, it'd be great to think that we were responsible for a wedding or something by doing a, a piece on the signs of sexiness. <laughs> um, <laughs> producer Ed McKelvey joins us to go through some of your comments from last week. We do. I mean, like it takes you like 30 seconds to text us and it means a huge amount to us because it helps us fill this part of the podcast. But also, <laughs> you know, it's nice to know what people are thinking. So please do comment. You can email us, science at newstalk.com, or you can tweet us. We're at News Talk Science. We get to all of these at the end of the podcast, uh, where we find ourselves now. So, um, Aiden, how was your weekend or your week? Uh, it was very, very good. I was, uh, I was considering listening to... Um 
our guest, uh, Paul Eastwick, on sexiness and on attraction, I, I realized his main finding was it takes a lot of dates to find someone. And I can concur with that information. Having been on Tinder for two years on countless bad dates. Uh, I'd say you had like a billion matches, didn't you? Everyone matched with you, I'd say. Why would you say that? I mean, that's because you're very handsome. You've got the music thing going on. You've got like a cool media job. Well, I do. I do. I'd match with you. I do remember my friend uh, overlooking my profile and looking at the photos. And he was like, like, I had literally just put up five photos. Every amount of photos it is you're supposed to put up. Yeah. That I thought I looked good in. It was as yeah. simple as that. And my friend, who I would consider quite a... Um, he was a serial dater at the time. And a serial single man. He, he's not anymore. But he was like, yeah, I like what you've done there. You've got the, you've got the photo with the guitar. Got to get that. That's important. Yeah, you've got a photo with, a, with your, you in a suit. That's important as well. And you've got one here professionally taken. I like that. That's going to work well for you. And I was like, I didn't put that guitar cynically there. I was a musician for 10 years. He was like, sure, sure. No, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that. yeah, yeah, like, yeah. He was yeah. even like, yeah, you no, you're like, you here. just, you gave them the Barbie, um, the Barbie's Ken sort of uh, five different characters, um, <laughs> five different looks. The lookbook yeah. of Barbie Ken. That's what you gave them. Yeah, cover all the bases. Can I ask you when you this suit was this a was this a suit that that fitted and because you you don't you're not a natural fit for a suit if you don't mind me saying in the sense you're <laughs> not a natural fit for a suit. Well, <laughs> well you, I, I don't know. It seems like when you wear a suit, you kind of you you're, it almost looks like even though you're you're not, you look like you're rebelling against being inside it. I don't know if that's a, it's a psychological thing. You don't like wearing suits, I'd imagine. Uh, I do, yeah, I kind of like wearing it. Like, I don't find wearing a suit particularly comfortable, but I mean, yeah. I do. I, you can I tell. Would be total, I, yeah, I'd be totally lying if I said I didn't look in the mirror and when I'm wearing a suit and go, I look pretty good today. But mm. I think your, your impression of this could be coloured by the fact that you've seen me in uh, black tie, basically, because we've been at, at like Imro Awards before together. No, you look and great in black tie. You look great in black tie. I don't know how interesting this is to our listeners, but but Aiden looks fantastic in black tie. But like when I see you, like if we're on a Zoom or something, and it's like if you need to wear a jacket or a suit or something, it always seems like. Well, maybe you did just throw it on that second, but. It, <laughs> I, I literally did. I have been on some of those deals with you. Uh, secret with my pyjama bottoms on yeah, the bottom half. Yeah. Well, we all do that. that. But, but, we all yeah. do that. All right. But, Let, go on. Have you more? I think we've exhausted this topic. I, but I no, well, cool. I, was, I, was, I was just going to say that. Uh, I am not like, I, I'm, it's, I'm trying to look like someone who, who I am. I would never, I would never wear a suit. Like, I'm yeah. a scruffy musician, you know? Yeah. So it naturally doesn't fit me yeah. uh, in that sense. It, it, you, Try as you may, that that comes through. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, that's mean. Right. So um, we were talking about Elon Musk's Starlink and the fact that um, the um, uh, using just a Raspberry Pi computer, some hacker in Europe managed to white hat his way into one of the satellites and hack it from the ground, which I thought was pretty impressive, but also slightly worrying considering Elon Musk is essentially releasing Skynet into the sky. Um, and, and if a, a random hacker can do it with a, a cheap computer, then that, that doesn't sound, make me feel super secure. Someone says, I don't know if that's impressive or just silly on Starlink's side. I think it's impressive to be hacked. So I'm not entirely sure I understand that comment. 
I well, I guess it's, it's impressive to put the, put them up there and in, very silly to uh, not have them secure. Indeed, indeed, indeed. How do you feel about the whole Starling thing? Uh, not good. And and that story sounds like the beginning of, to be honest, it sounds like the beginning of a James Bond movie. Like yeah, this kid it? figures out how to hack all these things that are orbiting the universe. It is. And then, it yeah. is. That's um, War Games. Have yeah. you seen that movie? Yeah. No. <laughs> have you not? Michael J. Fox, I think? You're always telling me about Michael J. Fox films. Well, so you know seen. what? Because I think that the, the age gap from <laughs> between you and me is the exact period during which Michael J. Fox fell off a cliff. Yeah, um, well, like my favorite movie. Well, I always tell people my favorite movie is 2001: Space Odyssey. But my real favorite movie is Back to the Future 2. So I do like Michael J. Fox. I just don't know him as well as you. Do you know, <laughs> it's not it's not Michael J. Fox. It's somebody else. And if this is if this is a live radio program, someone would just tweet us the answer. You're going to have to Google it for me while I, um, while or, I read or, text. Or turn off. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. So you Google it while I, I look at the next thing. So um, yeah, uh, on, on bees, we were talking about bees. Really amazing research by this guy, um, Professor Lars Chitka, um, designed these very clever experiments to show how clever bees indeed are. If you missed it last week, Check it out. It's fantastic. Jill said, that section on bees was fascinating, as is most of what you do. My favourite programme of the week. Keep up the great work. Well done. Um, jo- Dr. Jonathan McRae and team. I just got a promotion. Um, and, and from now on, you shall address me as Dr. Aiden. Do you hear me? Okay. Uh, doctor of what? Communication? Uh, doctor of vibes. Vibes, Vi- doctor. Vibes. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd give you that. <laughs> You can be um, vibe stalker. So we were. We also got a text in from the band called The Shed, and it says, "Great show. See you next Tuesday, lol." And I was like, "Wait, what? what? I don't understand this text to you." No, are, are they? I, I assumed they were talking to you. Are you? Are they playing at your I don't party know or something on Tuesday? <laughs> I don't think so. And see you next Tuesday. Is that a? I mean, I'm not down with the kids, oh, but isn't that an yeah. acronym? I don't, but then they, they say great show. It seems strange. It's a strange text. Anyway, um, and then finally someone, sell, someone else said, and Aiden, uh, our producer, who you're listening to right now, he uh, is brilliant at sort of filtering out just really nonsensical criticism. We, we do like to read out all good criticism, um, and then there's just some random stuff. But this one, I think it's, it's, I'm glad you let this through. Of course, anyone watch, of course, watching anything by indoctrinating climate alarmists, Attenborough or Science Foundation Ireland is N.O.T. worth listening to, says a random stranger who texted it four times and didn't put their name to it. Um, it's, and, was li- and was clearly listening. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and it's funny, though, like, like climate alarmists Attenborough and the largest scientific funding body in Ireland who are our sponsors um, it seems like a strange as a Venn diagram it doesn't really work do you know what I mean but then I'm a feeling this person isn't very mathematics slash scientifically um, they're not they're not big on the science I would imagine no and this person's Venn diagram is probably them and then the other part of the Venn diagram is everybody else <laughs> who's who's not as smart as them? Well, you know that does happen. Look, I mean, thank you for your comment, and sorry for alienating you a little bit. But you started it. <laughs> That's so incredibly childish, isn't it? I would only ever say this in the podcast. By the way, I would never say that on the radio. We do say we probably go a little bit too far on the podcast. That's it from us on the show. Before I get myself into any more trouble. 
And thank you so much to uh, all of our team, production uh, supervisor, a.k.a. producer Aidan McKelvey, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt and Ugoda Silva, who was on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. Thank you, Aidan. And to everyone else, stay curious. This is Dr. Vibes. This is Dr. Vibes (laughs) signing out. Stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.